0: following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. And so I thought today we'd have to do something a little bit different. He's actually right, because whenever I often get invited here, it's a one-off, And it's not for a series, but today we're going to do something else that I really like doing, and it comes to us from the book of Jonah. But before we get to Jonah, I want you to know that God is very generous with us. He understands our needs and our requirements, our strengths, and also our limitations. And in the book of Leviticus, in the fifth chapter, the seventh verse, we discover, you didn't turn there, it's going to appear up here, and it's something I'll come back to later. We discover that God actually has provided a way for a person of poor financial means to make a sacrifice. There is such a thing as a poor man or poor woman's offering in the Bible. If you could not afford a lamb for a sacrifice in the temple system, you could, well, let's read what it says in here. If this person is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespass, which he has committed, two turtle doves, sounds like the beginning of a Christmas song somehow, or two young pigeons, as one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. What therefore is the offering of a poor person if they can bring a lamb? It is, ladies and gentlemen, you should fill this in in your notes. I hope you have your notes here today. The first line in here. Is that according to Leviticus, the fifth chapter, the seventh verse, the sacrifice of a poor person was a dove? It was a dove. I've entitled today's message, Jonah, Miracle and Sacrifice. Miracle and Sacrifice. It's more of a teaching session than the next kind of three times I'll be with you, but I've got to lay the, a foundation onto how we might approach this book. It's incredibly controversial, the book of Jonah. But it is a lot of fun. Well, the title of today's message is Jonah, Sacrifice and Miracle. And I want you to turn with me if you've brought your Bible with you. And hopefully you have. I did not. I had to borrow my wife's. (laughs) We got in the car. We're halfway here. I said, where's my Bible? And um, of course, I had left it behind, ladies and gentlemen. Um, It's not like my glasses. When I lose my glasses in the house, they're normally up here. And the kids can actually see me wandering around the house. Where are my glasses? <laughs> and they will just be sitting there. They won't say anything. <laughs> it's like this, it's a sport, isn't it? It's just so cruel. And allegedly, they're Christians as well. <laughs> and I'm just wandering around the house all day. Where are my glasses? And then finally, I go, where are, I doing an and- Andy Murray. Have you ever seen Andy Murray when he gets frustrated in tennis? He goes, bang, bang, bang. And I'm doing an Andy Murray. Oh, the glasses are right here. Well, today, I forgot my Bible, strangely enough. That's a terrible confession. But I want you to turn to the book of Jonah, the first chapter. and We're just going to skip through the first, the first 17 verses of the book of Jonah. Because we need to do this to set the scene. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord had prepared a great wind on the sea and a mighty tempest on the waters so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners grew afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and they took the cargo that was in the ship, and they threw it overboard to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the ship, lay down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and he said, What mean you sleeper? I love this question. What are you doing down here? We're all about to die and you are pushing out Zs. Or Zs for those Americans who are here with us. What are you doing? He asked them to cry out. He said... Arise and cry out to your God. Perhaps your God will consider us that we may not perish. And they said, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Lots are simply dice. Then they said to him, in this case, I believe, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And to what people do you belong? They need to do a statistical survey right now. (laughs) We need some rudimentary information so we can find out if you might be the troublemaker here. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, for he had already told them. Then they said, what may we do for you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing increasingly tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship to shore, but they could not, for the tempest was against them. And then they said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us die for this man, and charge us not with innocent blood, because you have done as pleased you, O Lord. So they picked up Jonah, and they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they made, offered a sacrifice and made vows. But the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights." Wow, what a fishy story. We're right here, my friends, at the cusp of one of the most peculiar books of the Bible. If you think about it, it's set amongst the minor prophets. It's supposed to be a prophetical book. If you compare it to Malachi or Habakkuk or Zephaniah or Zechariah, all of those minor prophets which Jonah finds himself amongst, guess what they are? They are books of prophecy. From beginning to end, it's nearly all prophetic content. You know, the book of Jonah only has eight words of prophecy. Eight words of the book of Jonah are prophecy. It stands out as being vastly different from all the other books in uh, this collection of the minor prophets. The Jonah story has a lot of things that are hard to believe. Firstly, God's prophet deliberately disobeys him. I mean, it's blatant in your face, disobedience to God, and he is called God's prophet. More on this next week. God's prophet deliberately disobeys him, and then Jonah sleeps during a tumultuous storm in which everyone else fears for their lives, as if that was possible. He is told to preach to Israel's enemies, something that had never been asked before, and when he does do this, finally, those enemies actually repent. Yet the biggest, hardest Believeristist momentousness of the of this whole story is what that Jonah is swallowed by a fish. <laughs> I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen. Whenever I've been fishing, it's me that catches the fish, it's not the fish that catch me. The hardest thing to believe about this book, and I would suggest if any critic is going to criticize Christianity and say, You guys are all just crazy. It's not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that's would in the Old Testament, that story of that big fish following that, swallowing that guy called Jonah, the idea that a big fish can swallow, accommodate and house, and then deliver like a taxi Jonah onto dry land to continue his journey, it's not natural. It's not an everyday event, ladies and gentlemen. I I have not heard of this in recent times in the newspapers of seafarers being swallowed by great big fish and then delivered up onto dry land. I want you to know that if a person was eaten by a fish, swallowed by a fish, here's what would happen. They would die. (laughs) I hate to break the news to you, it's not good, ladies and gentlemen. That's why it's better you eat the fish than they eat you. You know, whenever I eat fish and chips and I've taught on Jonah, it puts a whole different story on it, because when I look at that fillet of fish by Hokey, that's a father's joke, you know it, that's not too bad, is it? And we had, uh, Jewel was up here talking about the book of Acts, why were all, why were all the apostles of, uh, why, why did all the apostles drive Hondas, ladies and gentlemen? Well, it was because they were all of one accord. Not so strong, but it's <laughs> kind sort of downhill from here on in. Okay, back to the notes. Uh, <laughs> you would die if you were swallowed. Because of the fantastic nature of this incident, people have questioned what type of book or story this is. And if you've got your notes here, you'll see this is the next component that I want us to look at. What kind of story is this, the book of Jonah? Well, I would suggest to you that it is, some people argue, and let's have our next slide up here, sir, that it is perhaps allegory or a long parable. Given the fantastic nature, the unbelievability of the content of the book of Jonah, perhaps it's more fiction than it is fact. And this often comes out that people suggest this. The first suggestion is, of course, that it's allegory. Now, allegory is really where you've got a story which has a secret Message or meaning and behind it, so that events and people as they appear uh, mean something else. And we were talking about Prince Caspian, the Lion Witch, and Wardrobe. Although C.S. Lewis said he hated allegory and it wasn't an allegorical story, it was an allegorical story. He just didn't like people, he just wanted to keep he kept saying that, ladies and gentlemen. But we know that Asland represents not a lion, but Jesus. And so some people are saying that this story about Jonah is not really about a guy called Jonah. Now, this big fish is not really about some large aquatic creature. But in point of fact, talks about the taking of Judah by the Babylonians. Let's have a look at a map up here of this. They argue that the great fish is Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. And for the punishment of the the sins of Judah, that God sends Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon down here, and swallows them up and takes some of them back, of course, including our man Daniel. And so that the book of Jonah is not so much a factual book, but it has this allegorical book with this other kind of meaning in behind it. There is a problem with this, and I do think that the story has some allegorical elements in it. But the biggest problem is this, that if this is true, it means that the fish... Or whale, or whatever this creature is, I'm going to talk about this presently. It is a form of God's punishment to the children of Israel living in Judea. It is a form of punishment. But if you read the book of Jonah, and this is what commentators and scholars who study Jonah say when they say they have a problem with this theory, it is simply this that if you look at the great fish in the book of Jonah, it is a form of salvation redemption, and a capturing up of Jonah and a protecting of him where otherwise he would ordinarily die. If you think about it, he's thrown overboard, and who prepares his rescue? The Bible says God prepared that fish for Jonah. So this fish, you may have never thought about it like this. It is not a form of punishment for Jonah. In fact, it's his redemption, it's his salvation, it's how he's going to live and still carry on the ministry that God has for him to the people of Nineveh. So it's not allegorical. Could it be a parable? Is it possible that this is like the parables of Jesus or parables in the Old Testament in which the story is more about symbolism? It's, it's not a true story but it it has a spiritual truth in behind it. I hope you realize that the parable of the sower, ladies and gentlemen, is not a literal story of somebody who went and sowed. It's like saying Jesus is the door, which is a metaphor or an image of Jesus. Jesus is not literally a door with a handle and hinges, you know, made out of pinus radiata. He's creating an image for us that he is the entranceway into God. Perhaps the story about Jonah is a parable. It's a fictional parable rather than historical truth and yet this has multitudinous problems to it. Firstly, it runs for four chapters. It's completely out of character with any other parable in the Bible. Can you think of any other parable that goes for four chapters? Three chapters, two chapters, one chapter. Most parables go for just a handful of verses, and some of them are just a verse long. So the real argument against this is one, the length of it. The next point is that parables by their very nature express simple spiritual truths if this is a parable what's it about nobody knows <laughs> if it really is a parable the meaning should be very clear that's why you speak in, that's why jesus spoke in parables to get across the truth to the every truth of the spiritual truth that he was trying to communicate in an everyday manner that was readily accessible to people now sometimes he had to explain it but once it was explained People knew it immediately. this has not been explained if it is a parable and and my last point is this: there are too many details. Do you know there are no true parables in the Bible that I 'm aware of where the main characters get a name? Think about the prodigal son we don 't know the name of the father, we don 't know the name of the eldest son, we don't know the name of the youngest son we don't even know where the, necessarily where the youngest son goes, but he gets his inheritance. Imagine if the parable said that the youngest son was Bobby Ray, and the father's name was Kenny, and Bobby Ray wanted his inheritance, <laughs> and Kenny didn't want to give it to him, but he decided, can you make it's all incidental information that gets in the way of the telling the story, there's no name for the pigs, there's no name for the fatted calf, although I, th- although I think Beef Wellington, wouldn't actually be too bad a name for a fatted calf. Just a thought for lunch, perhaps. A beef wellington, that's not a bad idea. But see, all of that is missing. The problem is that Jonah, there is no single meaning. It's too long. And this meaning is not unambiguous, which is what it should be with a parable. So we've discarded allegorical. We've discarded, hopefully, parable. I want to tell you that the evidence strongly points to it being history, and you should fill that in your notes. The evidence points to it being history. The first reason I think this, and other people believe this, comes to us from 2 Kings, because we have a reference to Jonah outside of the book of Jonah that puts him in his historical and geographical context in the ancient world. In 2 Kings 14.25, we read as follows, which he had spoken through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was at gath Hepha. Here's what I want to say about this. We have an independent verification that there was a guy called Jonah from another book of the Bible. It's specific. It's the same Jonah because it's the same father. Remember, the first verse of the book of Jonah reads as follows, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we also know where he comes from, Gath-Hepha. I'm going to talk more about this in the last sermon, about the location of where Jonah came from, because I believe this is very significant to his ministry, something I will touch on then. But you can see here we've got an independent verification that this was a historical person. I think there's no doubt in my mind that this is a historical person. In fact, I wasn't going to mention this, but they have discovered Nineveh. Archaeologists have. And there's one hill there that is named locally, and it's called the Hill of Jonah. Go figure. In a Muslim country, it's called the Hill of Jonah, and it's part of this archaeological find for the city of Nineveh. Let's go on to my next reason for doing this. I'm not sure if it's up here. In fact, I think we're staying here, aren't we, my young man Isaac at the back? Because we're going to look at it from your handout today. And it's verification that Jonah was a historical person from none other than Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 12, 38 to 42, the Bible reads as follows. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them and he said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. The word sign could also be miracle. You should jot that, put a circle around the word sign and write miracle. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a miracle or a sign, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed are greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed are greater than Solomon is here. What can we get from what Jesus is saying here in the story? Well, it's very clear to me that Jesus is in no way, no how, nowhere indicating he thinks Jonah is a fictional character. There is just no way, I believe, you can interpret that from what he is saying. In fact, the most obvious and straightforward way to take Jesus' words here is that it is historical. He thinks this story and believes it is fact. So the Lord of glory, creator of heaven and earth believes that Jesus, or Jonah, is a historical character. This is supported by tying it in with a historical place called Nineveh, and by the Queen of Sheba. Do you know the Queen of Sheba is also independently verifiable historical character? She also appears in 1 Kings as the Queen of the South. He clearly considers Jonah to be taken in your notes at face value. And that Jonah is as real as Nineveh and the historical queen of Sheba. A little addendum to this, or additional point, is if Jesus was identifying his own death and resurrection with Jonah's time in the fish, if the story of Jonah in the fish was fictional or merely symbolic, would Jesus be saying that his own death and resurrection was going to be fictional? and merely symbolic, it makes absolutely no sense. And of course, what do we know about Jesus' death and resurrection? Even in secular sources, his death is well attested to. It wasn't fictional, ladies and gentlemen. It wasn't symbolic. It was an actual passing of his life, and then subsequently three days later, his resurrection. Clearly, all the evidence points to Jesus' death and resurrection as literal, historical the same I'd have to say with Jonah. Not everyone believes this, of course, and it is probably one of these little battering sticks that non-Christians like to beat Christians over the head with. You mean you believe that someone was swallowed by a fish? I remember the story of this young seven-year-old girl. She was in an art class. She came from a Christian family. She was using some watercolors with some paint, and as she was painting away this beautiful picture The teacher came along, and this female teacher was an atheist and quite outspoken and cynical of any Christian belief. And while she was there, she leant over the shoulder of the seven-year-old girl and she looked at what was being painted and she said, Oh my goodness, that's so colorful. Tell me about this painting. What is it of? And the young girl said, Well, I'm painting Jonah in the belly of a big whale. And the teacher, without missing a beat, said, You've got to be joking. <laughs> Don't you realize that that story's not true? It's not possible for a person to live in a fish for three days? It's just never going to happen. It's not a true story. And so the young girl at seven years of age, she pondered this for a second and thought about it. And she said, "Well, I guess I'll have to ask Jonah when I get to heaven. And I and Jonah can have a discussion on this. And the teacher said, What if Jonah is in hell? And without missing a beat, the little seven year old didn't look up, but she said these words I guess then you'll have to ask him. (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, this brings me to my next point, because clearly I am arguing to you that I believe it's historical. The evidence all points to this, that Jesus believed it. The Old Testament supports this with our other reference from Second Kings. What kind of fish would this have been then? Because if this did happen, surely we should ponder what sort of fish that this, could, this could be achieved with. How could you achieve a feat that's impossible for a man to do, that is live inside a fish for three days? So I thought we'd look at some candidates, some fishy tales. Unfortunately, there's no really way for us to classify this fish. I know that for some of you, you're really concerned about whether I use the word fish or whale. Be some people here are getting kind of um, anxious that I've interchanged these two words. I don't know, I don't know why, to be honest. <laughs> because let's face it, both are impossible. Whether it's a big fish or it's a big whale... Come on, does it really matter? And yet, we will discuss this very point. In the Hebrew, in the ancient world as well, not just for the Hebrews, in the ancient world, they never separated out their aquatic creatures like you and I might do. You know, you've got cold, slimy fish. On the other hand, you've got warm-blooded mammals living in the sea. We separate these out quite logically in the 21st century and in the 20th century. In the ancient world, they never did this. They were simply creatures of the water. And so the Hebrew word that's used here simply could, could mean fish, it could mean whale, or it could mean sea monster. These are three alternatives that are quite acceptable with the Bible. Sea monster may be an artificially created creature specifically by God for this purpose. It may be a creature that no longer exists today and had no categorization in the ancient world, so they just called it a sea monster. Today we would have given it a name and we would have had it in a museum and all sorts of things would have been done with it, but I don't know. But in the terms of the Hebrew cosmology or worldview, it could be any of these three things, a fish, a whale, or a sea monster. But what kind of fish is big enough to swallow a person? Come on. I've seen some pretty big snapper but what kind of fish well let's look at a whale shark do you know a whale shark is pretty big you can see this person diving with this whale shark snorkeling it's pretty safe to do ladies and gentlemen they don't really like humans eating them so much as far as I'm aware the largest on record 12.6 meters that's 41 feet in length weighing 36 tons As you can see, this fish is probably big enough to swallow this person, but has absolutely no inclination to do such a thing. It is possible that it could be a whale, and I want to show you a right whale here, not the wrong whale, but a southern right whale. This is, and I've only included this because I like this photo, it's from National Geographic, and it was taken down by the Auckland Islands, south of New Zealand. And this right whale here is a good example of an aquatic creature with a very big mouth that's large enough to probably take a person into the mouth. But as with most whales, which you probably are unaware of unless you've dissected one, which seems a bit extravagant for any kind of uh, high school activity. Mostly it's just frogs, isn't it, folks? But the throat on a whale is very small. Big mouth, small throat. Therefore, the possibility of swallowing a human being is very limited, near and impossible for most whales, except for one. Let's look at our sperm whale up here. The sperm whale can grow to over 20 meters in length and over 60 tons. How heavy is that? My little nest, I came to church today, that little pregnant roller skate that I have, weighs about a ton. Imagine 60 of those bad boys stacked on top of each other. That's a very, very big aquatic creature, a very big mammal. Its mouth is large enough, and in actual fact, its throat is certainly big enough to swallow a man. And we know this because marine biologists who have looked at the innards of these types of um, whales, and on record, I should say, is that they show that they have been able to swallow a giant squid hole. And a giant squid is called a giant squid because it is giant it is very, very large. Do you know a giant squid's head is over seven feet in height and weighs a ton. It's pretty outrageous, isn't it folks? Imagine that imagine a head that big and you're what you know coming to church and you got you you're like six foot tall and then on top of it seven This is just how my imagination works, folks. And you've got this head this big, and you're you're having to be seated down, perhaps at the back. Well, you don't want to block everyone else's view, do you? (laughs) And you have a special design car, obviously a Cabriolet soft top. Um, But the wind resistance would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? You have these massive goggles, which would be the size of, I guess, uh, French doors. In fact, you could have French doors on the glasses, just peeling them back like this and closing them up. Um, that wasn't really intended today, but there we go. So this, this whale is quite large and could have swallowed somebody who's under six feet tall and weighing something like you know, 70 to 80 kgs without a problem. In fact, Jonah would have just been a morsel for this type of whale. Well, it's about time then, as most preachers do at this moment is to start talking to you about his so-called historical examples of people from the 19th century who were on whaling vessels, who got swept overboard, were swallowed by by a whale, and then the whale was captured, and they opened up the whale. And who should be inside? But the person who had fallen overboard. And guess what? Though their skin be bleached. It's a new form of bleaching, ladies and gentlemen. By the stomach acids of this big whale, they are still miraculously alive. You've probably heard some of these stories. The most famous of them centres around a whaler a guy called James Bartley who in 1891 attempted to harpoon a large sperm whale from a longboat from a ship known as the Star of the East and allegedly he was tipped overboard and the sperm whale swallowed him. And some 12 hours later they captured the sperm whale opened it up and who should be there boo. <laughs> you got to make some magic inside there and you just want to freak everybody out on the ship. Hello, <laughs> I'm here, I'm alive, and James Bartley allegedly had to be revived, but he was alive, and he went on to tell his tale. This story, which has circulated all around the world, and I'm sure has been the stock and stable of many Christian sermons on Jonah, is just not true. In fact, there is no historical verification for any of these kind of crazy stories that come from the 19th century. In fact, the Star of the East was a ship, but it was a passenger and cargo vessel. So there was no chance of harpooning anything. So it was based on a real vessel that made a trip from England to New Zealand at the time and plied the Southern Ocean. They have the ship's list today. There is no James Bartley on it. And the, wife's, the, captain, the captain's wife has said the whole story was just concocted and made up. Completely untrue. So I want to get rid of that idea that perhaps there are people that have done this because we're going to come to my next point. The silliness of some of these stories. See, the problem with all of this is, even looking at these pictures, I know the pictures were illustratively interesting to you. You might have been intrigued by the possibility of being swallowed by a whale shark or a big fish, and the possibility that you could be housed in there, like Geppetto and Pinocchio, where you've got the whole house, you've got a cat in there, I believe, as well, and a goldfish bowl. Those remember that early Disney movie? And you're thinking, well, could I live inside a big, a big whale? What would it be like? What would I live on? Would there be any air? Forget all that stuff. You'd be dead. <laughs> I think I already told you this. You get swallowed by a big fish, you die. That's what happens. You see, all of the stuff I've been showing you with pictures and telling you the story about James Bartley is purely s- silliness. Because what I am trying to do and what some Christians try to do is to scientifically reproduce a miracle. And this is bound to fail as if it were possible to make make it a non-miracle when we explain it in materialistic or naturalistic terms. Jesus made it very clear when he talked about Jonah that Jonah was the only sign or miracle he would give them, didn't he? He said it's a miracle, it cannot, if you could explain Jonah, a man surviving the fish for three days, guess what ladies and gentlemen, it ain't a miracle anymore. You cannot explain how Jesus laid in a tomb, rose to life three days later through science. Why not? It's a miracle. And so when we look at Jonah, we go, oh, well, this guy survived in the fish. Oh, look how big its mouth is. Forget all of that. It's a miracle. You cannot explain it. That's why trying to explain in your notes the big fish swallowing and preserving and delivering Jonah back on dry land in scientific terms is futile because Jonah's experiences are clearly to be seen as miraculous as miraculous as Jesus' death and resurrection. Well, Adam, what was the fish then? Was it a whale? Was it a sea monster? We will never know unless we get to speak to Jonah in heaven. We'll never know, but I do know this that Jonah one seventeen says that that fish was specially prepared. It was made for that specific purpose. That's what it says in the Bible. It was prepared by God. The vehicle of his deliverance was divinely, supernaturally prepared. In your notes, we come to our last section, Jonah on the cross. And you're probably thinking, Adam, this seems an unusual heading. Well... I believe it's because in the Bible, and this is a spiritual truth I want to get out of this today, now that we've kind of laid a little bit of a historical background here and discussed the elephant or the whale in the room, this whole discussion about this big fish clouds the issue that the message of the book of Jonah is much bigger than a man being swallowed by a fish. In fact, it's almost incidental to the story, and I'm going to talk about what the story is about in deeper depth in the next three times I speak to you. But I needed to get rid of this big fish out of the way because everyone wants to concentrate on it. Now we'll let that aside. Let's just think about one aspect of the story as I close. The great deliverance of the Hebrews in Egypt under Pharaoh followed the sacrifice of a Passover lamb, blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. A sacrifice preceded their escape from Egypt. Elijah's victory on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal followed the sacrifice of two bulls. Jesus' resurrection on the cross in might and power and glory was preceded by his death and cruel suffering on a harsh cross, his ultimate sacrifice. It's the same with Jonah. We can see this up here. We passed over it so quickly, it didn't seem to register, but in Jonah 1, 12, 15, and 16, he said, pick me up, it's in your notes, throw me into the sea. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Jonah, of his own free will, disregarding his own life, said, I will be a sacrifice for you. I recognize that I will die. He had, he had no idea that God had prepared a great fish. He was blissfully unaware of this, but he said, I will will allow myself to be thrown into the sea. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You see, this is a beautiful story. Jonah became a living sacrifice, a type of Christ on the cross. Of his own volition, he offered up his life for others, just as Christ did. Do you know that the name Jonah means dove the name Jonah means dove in Hebrew wow Jonah Jonah was a poor man's sacrifice man I love God's word can you see how this all just pulls together what does it mean for you and I then Clearly, it's not going to be physical. I'm not hoping that some of you don't go into the Hauraki Gulf <laughs> and try and jump into the sea, you know, and be swallowed by a big fish. Don't do that. You heard that from me. <laughs> That's not what this is about. It's a spiritual truth. If we want to have the same impact that Jonah eventually had and we want to impact our own country, which just is in desperate need of it, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see from legislative changes of recent times, We need to become a poor man's dove of Leviticus. It'll cost you your time. It'll cost you your money. It will cost you your emotional strength. If you are in need of a miracle, and I am just about guaranteed sure of this, there are some of you here who actually do need a miracle in your marriage, in your family in your work situation, or you know people who need a miracle, and without a miracle, there is no hope. What precedes miracle? Sacrifice. If we want a miracle in our own lives or the others, it'll take a sacrifice of something you and I hold dear, our pride. You may have to look foolish. Your fears will have to be sacrificed. Sacrificed. Your self-centeredness and our egocentric nature will have to be crucified on a cross. And we'll have to throw ourselves spiritually into the sea of that situation in abandonment of all hope of ourselves, but in sacrifice for somebody else. You can see when people actually do this in history, they become, sometimes they become famous, some don't. But it's a sacrifice of themselves for other people. And by faith, we will be perhaps swallowed up By God's specially prepared answer. Do you want to be a poor man's sacrifice? Because I believe the Lord was and he wants us to be like Jonah in this aspect of Jonah's life. That we're prepared to be spent for other people. But it requires sacrifice for that to take place. Jonah's amazing, isn't he? Lord, I pray That you would take the words that I've spoken. For you are a mighty God and you would breathe life into it. We thank you for the story of Jonah. And Lord, if we are in need of a miracle, we need you to touch our lives. Lord, we sacrifice our own ease, our own fears, our own concerns. Let us be a blessing to other people, Lord. Even as Jonah abandoned himself. Let us abandon ourselves to you and your cause. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.